HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Meet and 3 is back! We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home. Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull and attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet in 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. A California jury recently ordered the company Monsanto to pay just over $2 billion in punitive and compensatory damages to a married couple who both developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which they say was caused by their many years of using the product Roundup, a popular weed killer containing glyphosate. Given this recent verdict, in addition to other recent lawsuits with similar outcomes, I thought it was time to learn a little bit more about the herbicide, including how it came to be so pervasive and what its prevalence means for human environmental health around the world. Joining me on the show today to discuss is a woman who literally wrote the book on glyphosate, Carrie Gillum. Carrie is an investigative journalist and author of Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Carrie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So what made you want to write this book? (laughs) (laughs) What what Um, made you want to dive deep into the dark world of glyphosate? Well, I have to say, um, I've been deeply into the dark world of of glyphosate and Monsanto for, you know, many, many years, almost 20 years before I started writing the book. 
um, as a journalist for Reuters International News Agency, that was my beat, uh, food, farming, agriculture. And a big part of it was, was covering Monsanto and was spending a lot of time at their headquarters and with farmers in the fields, you know, um, learning about, about this genetically engineered seeds and the pesticides that were used, uh, Roundup specifically, uh, with these new seeds. And, you know, so I started writing about the company in 1998 and, and followed the science uh, and the evolution of both the environmental impacts and, and the human health impacts. Uh, that we were seeing in the scientific literature. So in 2015, this, you know, publisher uh, called me up and said, hey, you're writing all these really interesting things. Would you write a book? And I initially said no, <laughs> because who would read a book about all of these pesticides? Me. Concerns? <laughs> and, um, you know, so uh, I then did become convinced and uh, left Reuters and wrote the book, started writing the book in 2016. And, and I'm quite glad I did now, of course, um, Yeah, because I, I've become quite passionate about it. And I do feel like this information is important to, you know, consumers probably more than anybody else, because this is, you know, doing such a, um, a great deal of, of damage to our environmental health and, and, our, and our food supply and, uh, you know, when the science shows us it's dangerous for, for our own health. So uh, I'm glad I wrote it now, but I certainly wasn't wasn't <laughs> driven to it. Um, now, let's just like kind of start at the beginning. Um, just very simply, what is glyphosate? Glyphosate is a chemical. Um, it's a, a molecule that has actually been around for many, many years, but uh, companies were having a hard time trying to figure out what to do with it. They couldn't find anything useful, any useful properties, until Monsanto scientists discovered the herbicidal properties, the weed-killing um, properties that, that came with this chemical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was going to be a blockbuster because it, it's non-selective, meaning it'll kill most anything you spray it on in terms of plant life. Um, and it has a very specific mode of action so it works through sort of an enzymatic pathway um, that, that is seen in plants, but not seen, um, according to the science at that time, and according to Monsanto, not seen in people or animals. So the idea was it would be really effective and really kill weeds and plants and things that you wanted dead. <laughs> it would do yeah. it really quickly. Um, but it wouldn't be harmful to people or to animals. That was, um, you know, the, the idea behind it all. And it's, when Monsanto rolled it out in 1974, it developed all of these different formulations, which glyphosate was the main ingredient. And there were other ingredients, of course, um, but glyphosate was the active ingredient. And so Monsanto brought to market Roundup. Most people know that name. Right. Um, but there are, there are many, many other brands, and it is off patent now. And so there are generics, uh, glyphosate generic uh, herbicides all around the world too. Wasn't it what didn't they say it was what is it safe enough to drink when it was first when it was first um you know first came out not that I don't I don't know how many takers there were um <laughs> on that one but I mean it did seem like they were this was fair, like very pushed as very very safe in the in the beginning. Very very safe. Right. I mean very effective and very safe. And um, yes, safe enough to drink, safer than table salt. I mean, these these were the things um, that sold this in the minds of the public, as well as farmers, and cities, and counties, and golf course operators, and, and forestry management. Um, 
all around the world, this has become, you know, the go-to uh, herbicide. And it is now indeed considered the world's most widely used herbicide. Um, and it is very true that compared to some others um, mm-hmm. that were being used by farmers, um, like Paraquat, for instance, uh, you know, those Paraquat and some other herbicides can be quite deadly um, in a very acute basis. You paraquat, you get a little bit in your mouth, you splash a little bit up and, and accidentally swallow a little bit, and you're going to be dead in a couple of weeks. Wow. Um, so glyphosate, you know, comparatively, <laughs> uh, was safer. Yeah. Um, but what the science has shown us, of course, is that the long-term exposure, and particularly the exposure because people have been told it's so safe, they haven't been taking precautions. Um they, have, they don't wear protective gear. You know, if you spray it around in your yard, you, you see advertisements. Monsanto shows people in shorts and flip-flops and T-shirts spraying it. Um, but the science has shown that that's a really bad idea. So it was first introduced for non-crop uses, right? And then that has changed over time? Well, I mean, it was pretty quickly adapted for agricultural use um, in the 70s. Uh, it, it was became widespread in, in the 70s uh, and 80s, but in agriculture, the, the use exploded uh, in the 90s when Monsanto introduced Roundup Ready crops. Because prior to the Roundup Ready crops, farmers could only use it, you know, much in the same way they used others. They could use it to to prepare their fields, um, you know, for planting. They could use it, to, you know, perhaps along edges and things, but they couldn't spray it right over a field of soybeans, for instance, because the soybeans would die right. <laughs> along with the weeds. Yeah. But when Monsanto introduced these genetically engineered crops in the 90s, um, they were designed to tolerate it, um, to, to resist the glyphosate. Uh, and it was like a magic bullet. You know, farmers just thought, oh, my Lord, this is the best thing ever. I can spray it over my entire field. And the weeds that are that are in there sucking up, you know, moisture and, and nutrients will die and and my crops won't. And so, you know, they, they loved it. And Monsanto rolled out Roundup Ready corn, Roundup Ready soybeans and Roundup Ready canola and cotton and alfalfa, sugar beets. Um, you know, it, it became the hottest thing uh, in agriculture. Now, Monsanto wasn't doing this out of, you know, oh, we really want to help farmers. Right. And as I look in my book, they were, their patent was expiring on glyphosate, and they were looking for a way to continue to capture that market and to expand their share. And, and so they sold out these crops. And, you know, that's one of the things we talk about in the book. You hear all about genetically engineered crops are all about feeding the world. And, and really in their origin, and still to this day, they're more about selling herbicides than they are about feeding the world. They don't have anything to do with yield or improved nutritional quality or anything like that. Roundup Ready crops are all about selling glyphosate-based herbicides, and it worked great for Monsanto. We had volume use of glyphosate herbicides was around 40 million uh, pounds a year in the United States Mm -hmm. um, before they introduced these crops, and it's up to about 300 million pounds a year now in the United States. Wow. I don't so, I don't even know how to conceptualize that. Like I, I have no kind of basis of comparison. It just I mean it seems like a lot. <laughs> but are there, and it's the most you know, you widely used, you said, but like is there is there anything that's second? Like you know, how do I kind of wrap my head around these numbers? It 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 is the most widely used in vast, 
you know, vast quantities. Um, and, and, and that is because you typically cannot spray a pesticide directly onto a plant and not harm the plant, um, you know, particularly a weed killer. So you don't have a lot of other options. Um, now, Monsanto has introduced some new genetically engineered crops that can be also be sprayed with dicamba and also be sprayed with 2,4-D. So those older weed-killing chemicals are, are making a comeback as well. Um, and we're seeing more use of those. Um, and is that because of one of the, is that because of um, the rise of sort of what they call super weeds? Like there, there have been, um, some of these crops have kind of, or the weeds have become resistant eventually over time to glyphosate? Yeah. One of the interesting things that um, I found was that weed scientists, uh, warned the EPA in the 90s when Monsanto was rolling out these crops. They, they told our Environmental Protection Agency and Monsanto, this is a really bad idea because what's going to happen when you're using it at these higher levels and you're, and you're spraying it more often and putting it directly onto you know, these wide areas, weeds are going to become resistant. Um, a big part of agriculture is the successful agricultural practices of traditionally have been more about sort of mixing it up and, and rotating crops and using cover crops and using other techniques that keep the soil rich with a variety of nutrients that are all sort of needed in, in an interactive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this Roundup Ready cropping system did was encourage farmers to just throw that handbook out the window and just start planting Roundup Ready corn, Roundup Ready soy, put the same herbicide on it year after year after year after year. No cover crops needed, no rotation needed. Um, so, in and, so in a sense, it was like easier for the farmer. It, um, it was much easier. And in the short term, you know, they loved it. But as you said, uh, we did then immediately start to see the rise of weed resistance. And it became a big problem in the mid-2000s with only 10 years in, about uh, 2010 or 11, it was a crisis in farm country. Uh, And now it really is. We have over 100 million acres in the U.S. of uh, farmland that has resistant weeds on it that farmers can't kill. They can get some of them as big as a small tree or a man. I mean, it's it's been a real problem. and And what we talk about in the book is a pesticide treadmill. And so the chemical industry has said, don't worry about changing up your practices. Just let's pour more pesticides onto the problem. Right. Um, And how how was it decided to use to create these seeds specifically um, for these types of crops? Um, I mean, they all seem mostly like commodity crops. So what was the sort of decision point around that? And why haven't we seen it um, spread as much to other, you know, like specialty crops? Well, our, our certainly our largest um, production, our, our largest production of crops is corn and soybeans and wheat, uh, you know. In and that was of, before, that was, you know, kind of before the Roundup and, Ready seeds? Yes, and today. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, those are, you know, our main crops that we use in, in ingredients for food for people, ingredients for food for pets and livestock, you know. Corn is in pretty much everything, probably in your refrigerator yeah, yeah. cabinet. Um, they did try to, you know, and this I write about this. They tried very hard to get a Roundup Ready wheat. I um, know. But, Wait, so I'm sorry. Right. I was going to ask you about that. I read that, and I was like, why did that? Not, why was that the one crop where people were like, I draw the line? <laughs> well, because farmers didn't need it. <laughs> they they didn't have a problem with weeds. 
they didn't need it at all. Uh, they didn't want it. Um, they don't have they, weeds? That's not a problem with, with well, wheat? Correct. And it's because of the, the cycle generally of, uh, you know, wheat harvest and wheat production. And the, the biggest problems were being experienced by northern wheat growers. Um, and they didn't have weed problems so much as they had um, a disease problems. Hmm. And Monsanto wanted to roll this out in the type of wheat that is grown in the northern states. And the northern state wheat growers said, no, we don't have weed problems. We have disease problems. Can you do something for us with disease? And Monsanto said, maybe later, but why don't you first accept this round of pretty first do um, this. You know, wheat seed. And yeah. as international markets got very upset and said, we're not going to buy wheat from the United States if you introduce the genetically engineered wheat. And it became a very big sort of issue when farmers were very worried that they were going to lose important export markets. And, and they pushed back so hard um, that eventually Monsanto um, pulled back on that. So what about what about other countries? Are Monsanto seeds found worldwide? Are they predominantly used in the United States, these Roundup Ready seeds? So the genetically engineered seeds um, are in many, many different countries, are cultivated in many countries, um, but by far um, no one comes close to the amount of, of acreage or land mass planted to genetically engineered seeds. Um, the United States is first, uh, and then South America. Uh, and then there's a very precipitous drop-off um, in terms of, you know, the, the land mass that's devoted to genetically engineered crops. But there are, you know, many countries that have their, a very small amount planted to these crops. And, not um, in Europe. Europe doesn't doesn't. Most of Europe does not allow uh, the cultivation of genetically engineered crops. Right, and any crops. I mean, there are there are some genetically engineered crops that are not Roundup Ready crops, right? They're not oh, necessarily exactly. you know resistant. Exactly. So. Roundup Ready, though, the the glyphosate tolerance is the most predominant trait, um, and then after that, the next most popular, most predominant trait is an insect resistance. And that's a plant that, um, you know, can, is toxic, in essence, to the insects that are trying to chew on it. Um, which makes it think me think that it would be toxic to us. But, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a scientist, so what do I know? Um, that's a whole other yeah, issue. Yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> issue. So what, how big of a business is this, um, you know, for Monsanto? Like, where, what were their, kind of their profits like before... Um, you know, let's say in the 90s and then after these Roundup Ready seeds uh, were introduced so, to the market. Right. So Monsanto saw some pretty strong um, growth after the seeds came about. But, of course, they also went through a restructuring and, and they sold off some business. They spun off some. Uh, they had a whole line of industrial chemicals uh, where they, they spun it off and filed for bankruptcy um, because there were massive litigation um, over these injuries um, due to these industrial chemicals. And so, um, you know, so the company's business bottom line really saw a lot of uh, change about the time that it started focusing um, on these things. So it's not really, it wouldn't be an apples to apples to talk about in mm -hmm. the 90s until modern day. But at the time that they were acquired by Bayer last summer, the company was um, had about 14 to 15 billion in revenue, mm -hmm. um, and and a good amount of that, about 20 percent, was was singularly because of the the pesticide part, the glyphosate business, and then and then the rest of that was mostly the seeds that are designed to be used with the Roundup. 
So. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> so big business. <laughs> big business. Very big business. Do any of these big food companies, they basically all get their seeds from Monsanto, like, or 80% of them or so uh, for well, the commodity, you know, for so the bigger commodity crops? Monsanto licensed the trait. I mean, that was a big part of their business um, is that they developed these genetically engineered traits um, that can be put into seeds, in essence, put into germplasm for different seeds. So different companies, uh, you know, Pioneer DuPont or, or Dow or others, um, if they have great, you know, core seed germplasm, um, but they want that genetic trait, they could license it in essence. They could pay Monsanto and use that trait. Okay. Um, that glyphosate tolerant trait. So it, you know, it is found in, in seeds that are sold by a variety of companies. Okay. All right. So what if some of the, what are some of the, you know, you talk a lot about obviously the safety and we're going to get into some of the, um, recent court cases, um, in a, in a little, a little bit later, um, that have, you know, said that this chemical is very unsafe and, and harmful to human health. But what were kind of some of the initial, you know, rumblings um, in terms of the concerns of safety? And what kind of evidence, how has the evidence sort of evolved? Right. That's such a good question. I mean, for me as a journalist, um, the environmental problems were became apparent first, Mm -hmm. you know, that, and that the weed resistance and the soil health problems, we haven't gotten into that, but there was scientific research being done by USDA scientists um, that were showing that the soil, when exposed to glyphosate herbicides year after year after year, that it really was, um, sterile is not the right word, but it was losing um, the, the micronutrients that are really so important and so needed for plant health. So the plants are becoming less nutritious and the soil is less uh, robust and viable. So all of that, I was really kind of tracking that and following that and the use patterns and the competitiveness. But the scientific research pertaining to human health, you know, the more this was being used, of course, the more scientists were interested in, in tracking it and tracking right. what it might be doing. Um, and so you started to see studies come up from around the world uh, that were showing connections to carcinogenicity, to reproductive health concerns. Um, so, you know, I, I started writing about those. And, you know, it was back in 2010, 2011, I think, when I said my first headline that said something about Roundup and cancer. Um, yeah. And, and then, of course, we had the International Agency for Research on Cancer in 2015, which looked at all of these studies that had been done for so long. Um, and these were not done by Monsanto. These were done by independent scientists, you know, at universities and public health agencies. And, and uh, they said, yes, this looks like it is a probable human carcinogen uh, with a particular association to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So let's go over, I want to talk about regulation um, because this is, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of regulation um, and certainly in, in instances like this where I would think that this kind of a, a substance would be heavily regulated, but I was constantly shocked to learn otherwise throughout, you know, throughout your entire book. So like, what is the, um, what is the regulatory process just basically for bringing a new chemical like this to market in the United States? 
Well, the companies will tell you it's particularly onerous and that they spend a lot of money um, to do the tests that the EPA requires and to file all of the papers and to go through all of the scrutiny. Um, you know, and in fact, it is, you know, a long process. Um, now, a lot of these, these pesticides are allowed to go on the market without actually completing the process. That's a different, different mm, story. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one big problem, and there are many, um, is that in a chem- in a pesticide in a product like Roundup, for instance, the EPA only requires certain types of tests on the active ingredient. So they only ask for Monsanto to do tests on glyphosate, not on the combination that Monsanto was actually going to be selling to the public and that farmers were actually going to be spraying on our food. Um, so, you know, they ran these tests on glyphosate. Now, glyphosate tests by themselves very early on showed trouble um, with the EPA in the 1980s. EPA scientists said these toxicology tests look like it causes cancer. Um, <laughs> the EPA doesn't do any of its own testing. They simply rely on the registrants. These are the companies that are selling the products. They rely on them um, to basically show them what the science is. And they rely very heavily on scientific studies that are funded and conducted by these companies. Um, wow. What we found, yeah, and people don't, you know, get that. I think, but and yeah. and what you see through the through the document trail, you know, I've obtained several thousand EPA documents, internal documents, archived documents, and what you see when you look at that and you look at their communications with Monsanto, you know, there there are internal, you know, the scientists working at EPA who have real concerns. And then there are the politically appointed people and the managers and the superiors who are really working to keep Monsanto happy and working really closely with Monsanto and pushing back on their own scientists. Um, so you see that, you know, throughout the history with this chemical. And, uh, you know, it's, it's gotten in some places to be, you know, at one point the Office of Inspector General said they were going to investigate um, collusion concerns between EPA and Monsanto. I mean, they're just evidence that, you know, lots and lots of evidence of um, of very cozy relationships. And and what one EPA, you know, scientist actually said in the memo that our job is to protect public health. It's not to protect you. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, one of the things you say is that actually um, the part of the mission of the EPA, and so is the EPA the only regulatory agency? I mean, the FDA and the USDA are involved in part, right, at certain instant, at certain points? Or is it just the EPA? So, when, so in terms of, of a pesticide, a chemical that you go out and you spray, like Roundup and glyphosate, that is primarily the EPA. Now, if you have a plant uh-huh. that is toxic to insects, that is regulated more by the USDA um, okay. because it is because it is a plant and all. And right. of course, the FDA is involved in USDA in terms of the food and what sort of pesticide residues are we seeing in our food? That's okay. That's, that's yeah. That's how they the all EPA work together. Is the one that that Monsanto has to provide the test to and answer to. So just to um, just to kind of summarize. The EPA is essentially testing this chemical in a vacuum and not in the way that it will actually be 
used in the real world. And well, the EPA is doing no testing um, of the chemical. What? The EPA is, <laughs> is reviewing the tests that oh. are done by the companies. Okay. Even better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not even. Yeah, better. no, definitely not. Um, so they are reviewing tests that are being done in a vacuum and are relying um, heavily on science that they don't do themselves, that are that is provided solely by the company. Is and they do right? now. It, that is mostly true. Yes, they do also look at, and you can see in their reports that they also look at some outside independent studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've done that with glyphosate. But when they see studies that show evidence of cancer, for instance, or something, a cancer connection, Monsanto is able to come back into them and explain to them why they should discount that. Who's, and why um, they should should ignore the findings of these independent studies. And you see that happen over and over and the over EPA. again. Yeah. The EPA, yeah. So it's like lobbying. Even, yeah. Yes. The And the EPA at one point invited in um, several leading scientists from around the country to come and advise them on the way that they were assessing science as it pertains to Monsanto's uh, <laughs> product. And these scientists told them they were wrong and told them that they were doing it wrong and that they were not... Um, assessing the science correctly, and they just went ahead and maintained their position that it doesn't cause cancer, and uh, they agree with Monsanto. So you also write, um, and uh, this is what I started to say before, but you write about how the mission of the EPA is actually twofold, and part of it is to protect the environment and environmental health, and the other part is to also protect industry, in a way. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, and that's the USDA as well as the EPA. And the EPA, it's a little more nuanced. It's the language um, of what they're supposed to take into consideration. And and it's not only health and safety issues um, and impact on the environment, impact on, you know, water and, and, and all of that, but um, also the economic impact they are supposed to take into consideration when, you know, looking at whether or not to approve something or to restrict it. Um, and that, you know, is troubling to a lot of people because, you know, why should something, why should a determination of safety uh, have to do with economics, you know, and who's going to make money off of it? Um, but what the EPA would say is that, you know, there are risks and rewards associated with almost everything. Um, in, you know, almost every chemical, certainly, there are going to be risks and rewards. And so you have to balance uh, all of these things. And if it's beneficial to farmers, it can help generate, you know, more money, more profits for farmers and for seed companies and chemical companies. And that helps the economy. You know, it's it's one side of the uh, the ledger that has to be weighed against the risk. But it is alarming to learn that that is one factor that they have to look at. So um, is there any testing? Uh, well, we talked about the EPA. They rely on, you know, in terms of bringing the chemical to market. Um, and then is there periodic follow-up testing um, with the safety of this chemical, or does that happen? Yeah, that's that's my first question. <laughs> so they're supposed to, every 15 years, do a re-registration sort of analysis and review. Um, with Monsanto, it took a lot longer than that. They're, they're, I have lost track of, you know, how past 15 years we are now in terms of re-registration, but um, currently at this time, they, they are just completing a re-registration of this product, and Monsanto has, um, you know, they are agreeing with Monsanto that 
uh, it's safe, that there shouldn't be, you know, restrictions put upon its use, that it shouldn't have new warning labels, that it doesn't look like it causes cancer. Um, so that's their position now. Now, we did get an interesting, I got an interesting document last um, uh, week recently here from um, a court file mm-hmm. that had just been just been obtained by lawyers uh, through discovery, and it's an internal Monsanto report that was generated by a corporate intelligence company that Monsanto hired to gauge the temperature of the Trump administration and see how helpful they were going to be to Monsanto. And what you see in this in this report, um, they're reporting back to Monsanto, and they say they've talked to you know a senior domestic policy advisor at the White House, and he told them, we quote, we have Monsanto's back on pesticide regulation. We're prepared to go toe to toe on any disputes they may have. That's um, great. And, and and it goes on and on, um, you know, which a reading of this is it's quite long. Is that uh, yes, the professional staffers within the regulatory agencies don't agree, but the political people in these regulatory agencies have Monsanto's back. Um, well, that is really depressing. Uh, okay, so... <laughs> it's depressing. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's really depressing. Um, so what about in, in terms of, like, our food supply? So, you know, I think EPA, environment, environmental health, what about, like, human health um, in terms of what we're ingesting. So USDA, FDA, how are traces, you know, how is this, how is like the prevalence of this chemical recorded and traced throughout our environment and food system? This is, and this is my pet peeve and has been forever. And I think, frankly, it's the chapter in the book that makes most people just want to throw the book across the room. <laughs> I don't know if it's in you. Chapter four. Yeah. Um, where we talk about weed killer for breakfast. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of highlights on that chapter, by the way. It's a lot. It's very highlighted. <laughs> it's, it's just infuriating. Um, the, so, so food, you know, in food and farming, farmers, a lot of conventional farmers use a lot of different insecticides and fungicides and herbicides, uh, you know, in, in growing their food. And so we quite, often in a lot of the food supply, there are traces of or residues of these different pesticides. And because we know they're dangerous and they can be harmful to human health, the EPA sets limits on the residue levels that can be in our food. And if it's higher than that limit, um, it's, you know, alarm bells are supposed to go off. And the FDA and USDA check thousands of food samples every year for these different pesticides. Um, They've never wanted to test for glyphosate, even though glyphosate is the most widely used, even though it's been on the market for more than 40 years, even though we know it's sprayed directly onto many types of food, they've never wanted to check for it. And that just drove me crazy every year when I would read their big fat reports and, and they never had any testing for glyphosate. I just don't, how so, do you, how can, I can't, I almost don't believe it. I mean, I believe it because it's very, <laughs> it's very well documented in your book, but I can't wrap my head around the fact that they're just, they're like, nope. We're going to pass on this. Yep. And uh, they would say to me, it's, well, number one, it's really safe. So who cares? Um, We can't prove that. We can't prove that. But Number two, they would say, um, it's probably not very much anyway. It's probably not very much in there anyway. Um, And they would say, it's really hard to test for it. Um, 
it's it's different than other pesticides uh, in in the way it, it's distinct enough that you would have to run special tests on it. Is that true? Um, and that yeah, that is true. And that's expensive and hard to do, and we don't want to do it. It's pretty much their answer. So, I mean, you think it'd be <laughs> worth it, right? You think this is a big enough deal? So what happened, right, is the Government Accountability Office issued a report in 2014 and said, you guys really need to test for this. You're not doing your job. You're not doing the public service. You, you need to test for this as part of your program. The FDA said, okay, we will. The USDA said, heck no, we are not going to. And they still are refusing to do that. Now, the FDA, if um, I find this, you know, the FDA gave a green light to its senior chemist um, to start doing, you know, putting together a testing program for glyphosate. One of their very most senior chemists um, pulled some honey samples and oatmeal and things like that and started doing some testing and found, and I, I have all of this laid out in through Freedom of Information documents, the FDA has never discussed this really publicly, um, but this chemist found very high levels of glyphosate, levels that would be considered illegal uh, in honey samples, and reported that to his supervisors, and they told him not to worry about it, and not nothing he needed to concern himself with. He then did the same thing with oatmeal, found very high levels in baby food oatmeal products on store shelves. And, uh, you know, he he was very alarmed by all of this and trying to report this. And what happened is he got reassigned uh, and was told he could no longer do any pesticide um, testing on food. Wow. I mean, how does how does it end up in honey like that doesn't necessarily that would not be the first thing that I would think about, you know, where I would think to look for this chemical. And yet. It seems, I mean, you just said the levels were through the through the roof. Right. And, well, it's because bees um, go wherever bees want to go. And bees, um, you know, are exposed to pesticides and glyphosate, particularly around farm fields where it's been sprayed on crops, you know, or it's been sprayed in, in you know, any variety of areas where bees uh, would go. And they pick it up and it comes back and then it becomes part of their their honey. And then it becomes part of your breakfast on toast. Right. Um, yeah. So, and consumer groups have, have now become very concerned, and they've started doing an array of testing on cereals and snacks and bread products, and um, you know, essentially are documenting this uh, chemical in in a whole array of commonly consumed uh, foods. And the other notable thing about that is, you know, our government in Monsanto continues to say, okay. We've documented it in foods, but you know what? It, it's within the legal limits, so don't worry about it. It's largely, not everything. There are a lot of things that are really, you know, at very high levels, but it's within the legal limits, so don't worry about it. How do they set that? They, How do they set the legal what, limit? Right, but what they don't say is, and oh, by the way, we've raised that level <laughs> over and over and over again because Monsanto keeps asking us to raise the legal limits oh, to make it, so that higher levels of these residues are legally allowed in our food. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a problem. story that, that's that many yeah. consumers aren't aware of, right? And, you know, you know if you're spraying Roundup, uh, you, you do that voluntarily. Um, you don't know if you're eating it. Um, and that's, you know, that's a problem for a lot of people. So this lead chemist was reassigned. Where does that, um, you know, research stand now? So uh, they've had quite a 
fit of starts and stops and you know they started the program they suspended not suspended him they reassigned him they suspended the program they restarted the program they've had more problems and you know it's it's supposedly still ongoing but we haven't gotten any really robust data from the FDA um okay so I want to talk a little bit about well you know just actually while we're on the subject of um this idea that you can just reassign a leading chemist and that, um, you know, it seems like the company was working to discredit, you know, his work and also just the scientists who didn't, you know, whose findings were um, in opposition to what they would hope for. I'm wondering if you yourself experience any kind of pushback or backlash from a company and, you know, taking on an issue of this magnitude. (laughs) I've experienced incredible backlash. Um, I, I don't even call it backlash anymore. I call it harassment, um, intimidation, uh, efforts to discredit me, efforts to discredit my book. Uh, Monsanto um, orchestrated numerous attacks on my um, character. Um, I lay out one incident in the book when I was at Reuters. Uh, Monsanto funded... Um, a startup organization called Academics Review, which is a web-based supposed scientific analysis organization. Uh, It it doesn't disclose itself as being set up and funded by Monsanto. It it presents itself uh, as an independent, authentic voice on science. Uh, And this Academics Review organization, you know, wrote multiple scathing pieces about me that were put up on the Internet and shared and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, we know Monsanto funded it and we know Monsanto set it up because we have the internal emails um, in which Monsanto is, is saying we're going to set this up. We want to keep Monsanto in the background so it won't wow. affect the credibility of the information. We have some targets for you um, to, to go after. So they've written, you know, about me, other journalists, other scientists, um, and there are multiple organizations like this that have been set up. We have another one called the American Council on Science and Health. Sounds, Sounds really, you know, professional, <laughs> professional and trustworthy. Yeah. We have internal emails uh, where they are saying, "Hey, you know, we need some more money. Look at look at all we've done for you. You know, look at all that we're we're doing to promote the safety of your chemical and to criticize, you know, these people who are, you know, reporting and and things." please send us more money. And you have Monsanto saying, sure, we're sending you more money. I mean, it's um, crazy. That's crazy. It's, it's, it's brilliant really on Monsanto's part. And they talk a great deal in their internal emails um, about the importance of using third parties because they don't think that people will find, find the information credible if it comes from Monsanto. Mm-hmm. So, but they think if there are third parties that look like they're independent, and Monsanto can secretly send them the messages or secretly ghostwrite articles for them or secretly send them money, and then they can present the message, it will be much more compelling. And that's what they've been doing for decades now. And, we, and it's not opinion. It's not speculation. It's laid out in emails, communications, strategy reports. Um, very clear. So it seems to be that there is, there's been a, a bit of a shift uh, changing of the winds for Monsanto. So they were recently purchased by Bayer. Uh, when was that? It was like a year ago or so? 
The deal closed last June. Yeah, June of 2018. And what was it? And remind me of the number. It was a big one. <laughs> They paid Bear Bear, the German company paid about sixty three billion dollars for Monsanto. Yeah. And now I think they might be having some buyer's remorse. Do you wanna um tell us a little bit about there have been a few court cases recently um that have been pretty major blows to the company. Um can you tell us a little bit certainly about the most recent one that, that really the verdict was just handed down? Was it this week? I think it was this week. Yeah, so what has happened is uh, after the International Agency for Research on Cancer declaration that this is a probable carcinogen, you started to see law firms um, around the country signing up plaintiffs who have developed non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which was the type of cancer that, you know, was linked specifically to exposure to Roundup and, and other Monsanto products. And you now have about 13,400 or so plaintiffs around the United States. Um, and we've had three trials, and as you mentioned, the most recent trial um, concluded just here in early May, and the jury awarded $2 billion in punitive damages uh, to a husband and wife who used Roundup for about 30 years and both have non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I mean, that um, is a stunning amount. Stu- it, it's stunning. quite stunning. Yeah. And it, it's directed to, it was meant by the jurors um, and asked for by the plaintiff's attorneys to send a message to Bear, yeah. to send a message to Monsanto that they should start warning people, that they should acknowledge the risks um, and, and compensate people and put warning labels on so that people know maybe they should wear protective gear. Maybe, you know, they shouldn't, maybe farmers shouldn't spray it directly onto uh, foods and things that, that we need to look at the risks as well as the rewards. And um, you know, so, I mean, obviously Bear is appealing. They, they've, there have been three trials. They've lost three trials. The first verdict was $289 million to a school groundskeeper uh, who's dying of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. The second one was $80 million um, to a, a man, California man, who has non-Hodgkin lymphoma, but is largely in remission. And then this one, uh, this one was $55 million in compens- compens- compensatory damages and two billion and punitive, which, you know, is just crazy. No one and no one expects that punitive damage award really to stand at two billion. Right, right. Uh, a judge is very likely to lower that. Um, but it still is a, a pretty powerful message. And what has happened of course is that the bear share price, the valuation of the company has plummeted. Yeah, d- definitely um, didn't rise, that's for sure. <laughs> since the first verdict came out last uh, on August 10th of 2018, uh, they've lost about 40% of their value. Um, wow. The shareholders are furious. They have called for the firing of the CEO who orchestrated the acquisition. Um, there's all sorts of just, you know, uproar in Europe um, over why bear would would do this why they would purchase this company with such liability i mean what like i think that's the what everybody's asking but do you have any idea i mean i I cannot imagine a world where a company spends you know acquires another for 60 plus billion dollars and they did not like take into account the fact that, I mean, these, these court cases, some of them had been ongoing, right? And this is not, they, the company has a long history of, of litigation against it for a variety of uh, grievances. So I just, I don't know. I just can't, I, I can't imagine they didn't know that this was coming, but maybe I'm well, wrong. 
if, if they did know, they, they did a terrible job of communicating it to shareholders um, because it certainly caught shareholders by surprise. You know, and in the world of publicly traded companies, that's, that's a giant no-no. You should yeah. never <laughs> surprise yeah. your shareholders with bad news. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that clearly is what's happened. There, now, the lawsuits started, you know, they started in 2015. They expanded in 2016, 2017. You know, the deal didn't close until 2018, so you could argue that Bear had ample time to become aware of the risks. Um, they say they they believe Monsanto's long-held position that there is no valid scientific evidence associating this chemical with cancer and that Monsanto was not deceptive in its practices. Um, now, that tune is changing just a little bit in the last few days. Bear is starting to acknowledge that, well, okay, Monsanto... <laughs> really hasn't been the best corporate citizen, maybe, and maybe there are some problems, but it's still really, really safe. Okay, we're going to take a really quick break right now to hear a word from our sponsors, but when we get back, we will continue our conversation with Carrie Gillum, author of Whitewash. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average 3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The Virtual Agritourism Conference will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available for purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2019 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. And you know, Heritage Radio Network has thousands more. Hi, my name is Linda Palaccio, and I'm the host on A Taste of the Past here on HRN. Join us on a weekly journey through culinary history, where we explore the when, where, what, and why of food throughout history. You can find A Taste of the Past wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're talking all about glyphosate with investigative journalist and author Carrie Gillum. Can you just break down really quickly the different classifications um, that there are for gauging the safety of a chemical, both domestically and in the international community? Because as far as I understand it, there are some differences between how certain agencies, um, you know, what certain agencies think about glyphosate. Well, certainly. I mean, the regulatory agencies really around the world, regardless of what they call it, um, are, are largely in agreement um, that it doesn't look likely 
that this causes cancer. Um, that, that's in essence what the EPA says, okay. um, that, it, that it's not likely to be carcinogenic. Um, so they're not saying definitely not, um, but, but more likely than, you know, it's, it's not. Now, within the EPA, now that is the Office of Pesticide Programs um, that has responsibility really for the regulation of pesticides that has said that in their risk assessments. They're, the scientific arm of the EPA, the Office of Research and Development, disagrees with that. Uh, and they were consulted by the Office of Pesticide Programs, um, and they were told that, that they thought that there was, was evidence that it does cause cancer. This is, again, these are the scientists in, in EPA um, who said, you're wrong. It, to say it's not likely is just not following the science. And um, that's, you know, documented again in memos from the Office of Research and Development in the EPA. Um, but the EPA public position is we say it's not likely to cause cancer. Well, what about... Um, they, they, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was, I was going to say, but what about the WHO? Because they have a different take on it, don't they? That, that was recently... Right. So the World Health Organization, what they do, they have an arm called the International Agency for Research on Cancer. And we talked about that group earlier. That is an arm that, that exists um, to look at substances that people are exposed to to determine if they have a, a cancer causation, you know, connection. And, and so they don't just look at pesticides. They look at a whole array of, of different things, you know, a, a type of food or coffee or, or something like that um, that people would be exposed to. And it's, it's a hazard classification. So they're not looking at exactly how much a person is taking in. Um, they're looking at can this substance cause cancer, you know, mm-hmm. can it do that? And uh, what they determined with glyphosate, and they don't do their own studies. Again, they look at published peer-reviewed studies done by scientists around the world. Uh, and they, the people who look at these are the elite cancer scientists. They're people who have nothing to do with industry. They don't have anything to do with special interest groups. Uh, you know, the leader of the glyphosate working group spent most of his career with the National Cancer Institute. They're epidemiologists and toxicology experts. And, and they looked at this as a very apolitical body mm-hmm. with no political agenda and said the weight of, I- of science shows us it is a probable human carcinogen. They didn't say a definite one. They could have, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of regulatory bodies in, in the United States and in Europe and Canada and elsewhere, uh, they have all you know, basically said we agree with Monsanto um, and again, they don't do their own tests. They rely pretty heavily on the tests that are done by Monsanto. And that's a big difference because tests that are done by Monsanto or other chemical companies are typically not published. They're not peer-reviewed. Um, some people refer to them as secret studies. Um, so they're not open for scrutiny as to whether or not they've been done well, if they've been done according to scientific principles. Um, they're, they're secret. Um, so, so the World Health Organization's group doesn't, doesn't give much weight to these so-called secret studies. They look at ones that are out there that are published, that are reviewed by other scientists and are held to certain specific standards of scientific integrity. So what does this, what, I mean, what does this mean for the consumer, right? I, if I'm going to like a, t- a key takeaway for me would be probably causes cancer. <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that it seems like the WHO has 
um, not anything really or not as much as stake, at stake like politically, right? They're just strictly looking at the science versus regulatory agencies throughout the world, which clearly have um, other competing interests to some degree. Right. I mean, the regulatory agencies, like in the United States, our, our EPA is run by a political appointee. You know, yeah. it's, it's about the politics. It's about the money. It's support, you know, and the companies spend a lot of money in Washington to, to lobby and to get the people they want in positions of authority, um, specifically for these reasons. Um, Monsanto called it internally uh, freedom to operate, FTO, freedom yeah. to operate. They wanted to do everything they could to protect their freedom to operate. Uh, and that included ghostwriting studies that would appear in the published peer-reviewed literature. So they would look like they were, you know, these highly regarded. And I mean, we also saw them paying, you know, money to editors of some of these scientific journals. Um, this spreading money throughout academic, uh, the academic research mm -hmm. population in the United States. So, um, so there's a lot of reasons to be concerned about the regulatory, you know, category. And, and I, the biggest one to me is, again, it isn't glyphosate. No one out there is just exposed to glyphosate. We're right. exposed to the formulations. And in Europe, one of the key uh, ingredients that Monsanto's been using in its formulations has been banned because it's so dangerous. So um, a key takeaway for consumers, I guess, if you love your Roundup and you really want to use it, wear gloves, wear long pants, wear just a don't. breathing mask. Yeah, just don't do it. Um, <laughs> just don't use it. That, <laughs> right. I mean, the studies, the evidence, that even Monsanto's own internal analysis shows that this stuff gets soaked up into the skin it goes into your bloodstream. It can even go through clothing if your clothing is damp, if you're sweating. Uh, it's a very powerful, very potent chemical um, that is not safe enough to drink. Um, just to, yeah, not, yeah, not safe to drink. Just to give us a point of like a, a reference, um, the WHO's classification. So, remind, so is there an example of a substance that they say, like what definitely causes can what are, cancer? What are they kind of like unanimous on? in terms of, like, the next categorization? Well, I would have to go back and look that up. Um, you know, surprisingly, um, there, there are not that many. I mean, right. they've found that, that most of their substances that they look at actually um, are, are either possibly carcinogenic, which is a lower rung, or, or not determined to be carcinogenic. Right. Not, um, there's not enough science to determine it. So... You know, one of the criticisms that the chemical industry continues to put out there is, oh, IR finds everything is cancerous. You know, they find everything is. Um, no, actually it look at, Right. I mean, if you actually look at their data, they've looked at a little bit over a thousand different substances and, and only, you know, a small percentage of those have they determined is actually um, carcinogenic. So. so, okay, I don't have a garden anymore, unfortunately. And even if I did, I certainly never sprayed it with Roundup. Um, I don't want to be exposed to this. So what can I do to protect myself? Like my, you know, I don't use it. So like, are there anything, is there anything else I can do um, to kind of get myself as far away from this uh, chemical or combination of chemicals as possible? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you can eat organic. It's not allowed in organic production. Um, now, 
that that's a little bit of a flawed notion because our U.S. Geological Survey, which is part of the Department of Interior, has documented glyphosate in rainfall. Um, so rain falls where rain falls, and that could be on our an organic field, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, glyphosate is, you know, is ubiquitous. It's found not only in rainfall, it's found in air samples, it's found in soil samples, it's found in human urine. Um, it's, it's pretty hard to get away from. Yeah. But if, if you want to try, you know, you want to eat organic, you, you don't want to use it in your yard, you want to probably, what a lot of people have been doing is talking to city councils and parks, you know, people who, uh, public um, officials who who have the power to restrict the use of this pesticide uh, in public parks where our kids play and, and in school grounds and things like that. Yeah, that was one thing that, you know, and that you said in, early on in the book about, which I kind of didn't think about um, initially, I kind of went straight to like, you know, it's used for agricultural purposes, but you talk about, especially in the early days, like um, cities and municipalities using it, um, you know, to spray along the roadside for weeds or, you know, on golf courses, for instance, or just like all these other kind of applications that you wouldn't um, necessarily think of, and certainly in parks and um, all kinds of public spaces. So, okay, so... Exactly, um, and if you and you think about it, if you're out there, you know, if your children are out in a park and they're rolling around throwing a football and, you know, getting getting dirty and, you know, they're, they're being exposed if it's been sprayed there. Um. What can we do? So besides, you know, eating, eating in a certain way and um, not spraying your, your yard with, with harmful chemicals, what are some of the other kind of bigger, you know, policy interventions or solutions that you would like to see happen in order to reduce or to try to start to reduce the, uh, you know, the amount to which we are all exposed well, when you talk to, to farmers, as I do quite often, and, and, you know, people who are concerned about the soil um, and, and, and water quality, which, you know, is a very, very big problem related to agriculture and, and not only glyphosate, but other pesticides and fertilizers and livestock operations, um, they, they say we really need a paradigm shift. We need, we've, we've spent the last 40 or so years or, you know, focused on chemical agriculture. Uh, using pesticides, fungicides, insecticides um, to to beat Mother Nature into submission and grow the crops we want, where we want, how we want. Um, but Mother Nature is basically fighting back and saying, yeah, that's not working out so well for you now, right? Um, so there are farmers around the country, around the world, but here in the United States who are uh, experimenting, doing things differently in their fields. There's, of course, organic operations, but farmers who are separately, not necessarily trying to be organic, but trying to be much more judicious in their use if they are going to use pesticides, and they're finding they can reduce them if they use cover crops, if they rotate their fields, if they shake up their row spacing, um, Mm -hmm. if they encourage more biodiversity around their fields. And they're getting a little bit of grant money, um, but not a lot. And I, I think, you know, when you talk to people, they say we need our government to support the long-term solutions for environmental and public health, and that doesn't involve pesticides. So we're giving a lot of money to corn growers in subsidies, for instance. Well, that helps the chemical companies and the companies that are selling the corn seed. We don't need more corn. We have a billion bushels of corn every year uh, that we can't sell, that we can't use, that Mm -hmm. we can't get rid of, that just sits in storage. Um, We don't need to be subsidizing corn growers. We need to be 
subsidizing farmers who are looking for long-term solutions. Um, so, you know, that's something we talk about. There are many different things people are working on. We just, it's a hard uh, hill to climb because you have a lot of, you know, corporate money and corporate power uh, resisting a paradigm change. Right. Um, and also a political administration, administration that is very much does not seem likely to support some of these changes to exactly. industry. Um, and, you know, you talk about the regulation, that there needs to be like a really big change in how these substances are monitored and regulated. Yes. I mean, people talk about, you know, can we do more uh, independent testing? Can we fund more independent testing? Um, can we test for the formulated products as opposed to just the active ingredients? And and to their credit, the EPA did finally say in 2016, okay, I guess we do need to start testing the formulated products. Uh, and they are working with the National Toxicology Program right now to do that. Okay, um, good. You know, it's a start. <laughs> unfortunate it took 40-some years I mean, since these products have been on the market yeah. uh, to do that toxicity testing. Um, they have found in the first results that have come back that, yes, the formulated products are, you know, quite much more potent and toxic than uh, is glyphosate by itself, and they do kill human cells. Um, <laughs> it's, I shouldn't be so, laughing. It's not funny. It's devastating, but it's almost comical. Like, I mean, that's a low bar, right? But I guess we have to support any kind of movement in the right direction. Yeah, and it's, it's nuanced. It's not the government against the people. You know, there are really good scientists inside our agencies, inside the National Institutes of Health, Absolutely. And, um, National Toxicology Program, who are trying their very best. Yeah. Uh, there's a woman named Linda Birnbaum, who heads up our NIEHS, uh, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. And she's been warning, she's been writing papers and speaking out and saying our regulatory agencies are not keeping up with the science. They're not protecting the public. And, uh, you know, what we've seen so far is lawmakers going after her head and trying to get her um, kicked out of her job. Um, yeah. But, you know, people need to pay attention and, um, you know, support policies that protect the public and not corporate profits. Yeah, and and definitely, I'm. Um, it is it is heartening to hear that there are people in the um, in these agencies, you know, really trying to do the right thing. And um, we would hate to kind of overgeneralize, you know, and just say that they're, exactly. you know, like right. you know, uh, paint everybody with the same broad brush. But you know, and at the same time, it is. Um, I think as the public, our expectations can be higher <laughs> for for um, you know for being protected um yeah i mean what i see is you know we have an election coming up um you know we've had you have midterms you have and people talk about foreign policy right and environmental policy and all these things people rarely talk about food policy i know and food policy in, impacts every one of us probably much more than anything else yeah right we all eat every day and we feed our children every day and what could be more important than, than the health of, and the sustainability of our food? And we've been letting, you know, these corporations direct the policy, and uh, it's, it's not going in the right direction. Um, what is next for you? I'm working on another 
book. I'm uh, I'm doing this research for this nonprofit group, U.S. Right to Know Now, and we you know file Freedom of Information Act requests with with our government agencies and, and universities, and try to bring information to light about about all of these matters about about food policy, and not just agriculture on pesticides, but also looking at you know additives and sweeteners and and things like that. There's a whole lot to know um, about the food that we eat. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Okay, so any preview of what your book is going to be about, or is that top secret for now? Oh, we should probably (laughs) keep it top secret. (laughs) All right, well, I would love an interview with you once it is released. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, you. Oh, great. Okay, so and then um, finally, where can um, our listeners go to read more of your work and to kind of be, you know, to be kept in the loop about what you're doing? Well, I have lots and lots of articles and um, different presentations and interviews like this one on my website, mm-hmm. carriegillum.com. And uh, you can always go to usrtk.org uh, where we compile a lot of the documents that I've talked about today and present news and information for people who are interested. That's US Right to Know, usrtk.org. And you can always follow me on Twitter uh, at Carrie Gillum. I tweet a lot. <laughs> and I like to tweet documents. Um, oh, nice. I, I like to tweet just copies of documents and links to data and things like that. I don't, I'm not much for my my own public opinion out there. I just like to share news as I get it. So. Yes. Well, that's very, that's very important, especially in today's day and age. Um, facts first. Uh, okay, Carrie, thank you so much for coming on the show and um, chatting with us about this. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as to our engineer, Amanda Wang. Show music is by Tim Archer. All of our episodes are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebrations happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.